Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, from New York, the remarkable Laurie Siegel, author of Other People's Houses and Shakespeare's Kitchen. At 95, she has a new book, Ladies' Lunch and Other Stories. Lori Siegel, that's L-O-R-E, Siegel, has been writing books for almost 60 years. She's produced a dozen titles for children, as she says, first for her own kids and then for her grandchildren. And that includes translations from the Brothers Grimm with illustrations by Maurice Sendak. And almost from the beginning, she was published in the New Yorker magazine. In fact, when she sold them her first short story back in the 1950s, they paid her an astonishing $1,500. She threw the check down the incinerator of her apartment building. As she says, accidentally, or did my subconscious need to register disbelief? The New Yorker gave her a replacement check and invited her to write a series. The result was her first novel, Other People's Houses, which was serialized in the magazine and then published as a book. This extraordinary autobiographical work won rave reviews and keen admiration from readers and critics alike. But Siegel writes slowly. It was a dozen years before her next adult fiction, Lucinella, and then another nine until Her First American, an unusual novel about a European immigrant woman's post-war affair in the U.S. with a charismatic African-American journalist. The New York Times wrote that in that book, Laurie Siegel may have come closer than anyone to writing the great American novel. I'm outlining all this because although she's quite amazing, Lori Siegel is not a household name. Another 22 years passed until her next work, Shakespeare's Kitchen, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2008. But a mere five years later, she produced another novel called Half the Kingdom. Lori Siegel was born in Vienna in 1928, the only child of a musical mother and a father who was chief accountant at a bank. A few days after her 10th birthday, the Nazis marched into Vienna as Hitler annexed Austria in what's called the Anschluss. As a Jew, her father lost his job, Lori was kicked out of school, their home and everything in it, including a baby grand piano, was commandeered by the SS. Before the end of the year, on December 10th, 1938, Lori was one of 500 Jewish children on a train the very first kinder transport, taking them out of Austria. Laurie spent the next seven years in England with five different families. Her slightly fictionalized account of this experience became her first book, Other People's Houses. I spoke to Laurie Siegel from the CBC's New York studio in 2013. Among the memorable episodes in your autobiographical novel, Other People's Houses, there's the story of the sausage that your mother packed for you before putting you on the kinder transport, which would take you away from your family and everything you'd known as a child in Vienna. Can you describe what happened, the problem of the sausage? Well, my mother kept asking me, the problem was to give the children enough food to last them the train trip across Germany the boat trip across the channel into England. So that would be about three days. And mother, my mother kept saying, what would you like? And I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't be hungry. I didn't have an appetite for anything. So I suddenly thought sausage, which was something that, that's sort of exciting. And my mother ran down to get the sausage against my father's wishes, who got very nervous because we were about to leave to get me to the train that was going to take me on the kinder transport to England. But my mother was going to get this sausage. And in Vienna in those days, it wasn't necessarily so that you would go downstairs and never come back up again. I mean, there was a certain 
dread in going into the streets at all. But my mother did get me the sausage. So there was already a thing about the sausage. There was an aura about the sausage. And uh, we got on, my parents put me on the train. We said goodbye. Uh, We were in the train. And then there were about eight children in each of the carriages in this long train taking 500 children from Vienna to Holland and from Holland by boat to England. And each carriage, I think, had a, a helper from Vienna, from the Jewish community. And the helper came in and said, no, okay, everybody, you can now have your supper. And I took out the sausage, and I hated it. I couldn't bear it, so I put it away again. Now, I never could eat it, and I, nor could I throw it away, because my mother had gone all the way down into the streets to get it for me. And it became a, it became a burden. It began to smell bad. The children began to tease me about being a person who smelled badly. Finally, we were taken into a children's camp and stayed there until they found us foster families. And my foster family was going to be in Liverpool. And 20 children were taken to Liverpool. And it was while I was in the train and had gone outside to look out the window on the other side of the train that when I came back in, they had discovered this evil-smelling sausage. And, I mean, the shame of being discovered to have this horrible thing has stayed with me, and I threw it away at the first station. And I think probably for the first time during that adventure, began to howl. And there were two, the helpers and also the two English ladies who had come to take us to Liverpool, I remember thinking, looking at them, and they didn't, I could see, I was howling, I was looking at the English ladies, and I could see they didn't know what to do with me. There is something about a howling child that is impossible to handle, and I was both howling and watching them not being able to handle me. And you say the shame... the, uh, The shame of... Well, also... Some, one of the children said it's not kosher, and this, these were, you know, Jewish. Unfortunately, there are so many little parts of the story. The ladies, when they picked me up at the camp, had said, did I want to go to an Orthodox home? And I said, yes. And they said, that's lovely. And then they went away and told me to be ready the next morning. And then I continued writing the letter to my parents that I had already started and said, by the way, what is Orthodox? <laughs> So when my sausage... Because you grew up in an assimilated family. Yes, in Vienna, many of us were. And so when my sausage came to the light, smelling horrible, one of the children said, it's not kosher. And that added to the general disaster. I remember the feeling as if the waters were closing over my head. But interestingly, you know, when when the disaster happens, that is to say, the disaster of having been discovered to have the sausage, the world goes on. You're now a person who has been shamed, but the world does not stop. The the water is over your head and then it recedes. Well, no, you you learn to to, No, I think. I think you learn to live with the waters having closed over your head. And after a little while, that's the way you live. And it doesn't seem to be that uncomfortable anymore. You get used to it. Because you were, by your own account, a watchful child, a sharp, often critical, skeptical observer. And and the scenes involving the uneaten sausage reflect that mix of the poignant and the comic or absurd that that so often characterizes your fiction. I'm I'm wondering about that particular sensibility, how it might have been shaped by your experiences as a refugee transplanted to a foreign culture. That's always such an interesting question. Who is the person underneath the experience and what does the experience, does the experience create the nature or develop it? I I don't know how to think about that. But certainly even at that age, I was going to be the person who looked at everything that happened and tried to make something out of it. Things that seem disastrous and are disastrous are also the next story. Many of your experiences were certainly stressful. I mean, the frequent dislocations and adapting to live with five different foster families, and even the humiliation of the sausage episode. I mean, it's funny but awful. 
You talk about a survival trick with a price tag. What did it take to cope with all that? I think the survival trick, and I'm not the only, I've talked to other people who have gone to childhood traumas. There are two things that you can do. You can either cry and look the disaster in the eye and grieve over it, or you can say, wow, I said to myself, I'm going to England. How terrific, what an adventure. I thought to myself, I've, I've been in Czechoslovakia, I've been in Hungary, and this is going to be the third country I've been in. Now, uh, that is, I think it's a survival trick. I think it's also a uh, denial. I think it's also a way to not feel or to modify what you're feeling and to be able to live with what you're feeling. And for all I know, being a right is also a survival trick. You look at something unbearable and you think, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to write that. But what's the price tag? I mean, what did it cost you? I suspect something of a, uh, a distance from feeling. I'm by nature not able to cry when people I love die. I think that has something. I have connected it. The not crying when I left my parents in Vienna and not crying when my beloved people die. And your capacity to make close relations? or Oh, yes. No. That has not suffered. No. I know how to have friendships and loves. You describe how you were unable to shed the feeling that if you enjoyed yourself, this is in, in England, while you're family was still in, in Austria. If you enjoyed yourself, you must be heartless. Now, do you think that's natural for a child in your situation? Or do you think in some way you were especially susceptible to a sense of shame or guilt? I would suggest that that is not part of my ongoing nature. I think that was operating as part of the event. I remember thinking, I'm laughing now. Uh, I shouldn't be laughing. Before I left, my father gave me the uh, the job of talking to everybody in England. Everybody I met in England, I was to say to them, and please get my parents out of Vienna and get my grandparents out of Vienna and get my aunt so-and-so out of Vienna. And I took that very seriously. That was, that was what I was going to do. And so when I was playing with my friends and I, I found myself laughing, I thought, wait a moment. I'm laughing here. I should be saying to someone, some English person, please get one of these relatives of mine out of Vienna. I mean, I understood perfectly well that staying in Vienna was, I'm not sure what I understood deadly to mean, but I knew it was deadly. I knew it was fatal. I understood that. We all understood that. The children understood that. And here it was my job to save so and so many of my relatives. So to be uh, enjoying myself was problematic. In the preface to Other People's Houses, you point to two oddities characteristic of the survivor, an inappropriate anxiety together with an inappropriate happiness. Can you talk about that? I left home today certainly half an hour earlier than I needed to meet up with you in this fashion, because uh, the assumption is that something is going to happen. Something is going to stop me. The likelihood of something going wrong. The other way that this operates is that uh, I don't like going to the movies. When I, I go with a friend who just loves the movie, she settles in, she's going to have a wonderful hour or two hours. When I settle in, I look at my watch and wonder how long am I going to have to sit here because I assume that I'm going to be made anxious. <laughs> I have a character in my new book who uh, believes himself to look his own death and the end scene of the world in the eye, except he cannot bear the movies just like me. <laughs> he, m movies make him nervous. Yeah, I know that character. We'll it's, get to we'll get to him in a minute. And you gave him your own birthday, I, in fact. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, you noticed. Yeah. <laughs> but happiness, I find, you know, one thing, I have also have a character who is supposed to be taking anti-medication for, for depression. depression. 
And her problem is that she keeps having such a good time. <laughs> she loves her home. She loves talking to her friends. She loves going window shopping. That's also me. I really have quite a good time. There are many things which are thrilling. There's a lot in just daily life which is very entertaining and very charming. One of the striking features of other people's houses is the attitude of the young girl faced with so many challenges. And she's a tough cookie. I mean, do you think you were fair to yourself in writing this book? Well, I could imagine being my foster mother and having this smart aleck little kid who looked you straight in the eye and had judgments and had thoughts about you. I suspect children do, don't they? Don't children tend to look at the grown-ups and have their thoughts and their judgments? But they don't always speak them in the way you... Well, in, in a memorable, another memorable scene, you overhear one of your various English foster mothers complaining you'd argue the hind legs off a donkey. I still do that. I don't even like that about myself, but I, I'm a great arguer. Say something, and, I, and my, my thoughts will immediately jump to the opposite possibilities. Because you share your addiction to arguing with your fictional character, Ilka Weiss, who's, who's with featured. Ilka, and also my character, Samson, who has two, two sisters, sisters. <laughs> are arguing, and, and is only what he, he has the fun of disagreeing with both of them. <laughs> But Ilka said she's at yes, Ilka, war with yes. true belief. And so yes. I was wondering if, if that's part of it, to react so strongly to uh, absolutes. I have thought. I, I'm slow about this because it, it is not really very sensible. But true belief, people believing they know what is the truth and who are the people who are wrong does take me straight back to the Nazis and their sense of... They knew what Jews were, didn't they? They knew that we were unpalatable, we were unacceptable. And that really plays a very large role in my imagination. I'm awfully unwilling to do that to anybody. So if you are going to have an opinion and I smell the sense of you're thinking that you are right. I'm going to jump in there immediately. It doesn't always make much sense, but to me it makes sense to not allow you to believe that you're entirely right and everybody else is wrong. I will leap to the other side of the argument. Do you ever regret your own tendency to speak out? Oh, yes. Uh, no, because I, I, I like it when it makes sense. It doesn't always make sense. I mean, the necessity to disagree makes sense sometimes, but people like me do it even when it doesn't make any sense, and then I regret it, indeed. <laughs> Laurie Siegel, you grew up a beloved only child and only grandchild, and, and maybe because of that, your mother says at one point to your grandmother, you can talk to Laurie as you would to a grown-up. And, in fact, you had a very close relationship with your mother, and that's what, something that's echoed in, in your fiction. You've described your mother, Franzi, as wonderful. How so? What was she like? She was wonderful. In, she, she got to be 101 years old. And uh, we had a wonderful arrangement, so rare in New York. I had an apartment on the 12th floor, and she had her apartment on the first floor on Riverside Drive. And uh, this arrangement worked until she was 97 years old. And I would go down every morning, and she'd squeeze fresh orange juice. My mother was both loving and interesting to talk to. We didn't always agree. There were things she, where she wouldn't... I mean, I couldn't persuade her that modern art was anything to bother with or that modern music was anything to bother with. So we had the fun of, of that disagreement. But when I was a child... I, uh, here, I have an anecdote which will explain. My mother was a pianist, and she would play Bach and she would play Chopin. And, of course, I loved Chopin because it had that gorgeous melody. But my mother said, Chopin, uh, Bach, that's Bach, it's Bach. And I said at nine or ten years old, Chopin, uh, 
Bach, right? And then, of course, I caught up with the opinion that I had merely copied from my mother. So she was my educator. She was my exemplar. I've always thought that to have grown up with two very good grown-ups, my Uncle Paul, her brother, and my mother, is just a terrific gift for a human being. My father was a little bit left out in the cold in this setup. But my mother and my uncle, my uncle also lived into his late uh, 90s. And he was a reader and he was uh, something of a poet. Our conversations were just wonderful. And your mother proved to be very capable in whatever job she landed. I mean, she played the piano. She taught music. When she arrived in England, she she could work as a housekeeper. She worked in a restaurant chain in New York. I mean, what impressed or, or perhaps surprised you most about her? I think she was able to uh, accept what life dealt her and to some degree, and this is where I resemble her, and we've talked about that, to enjoy it. I have this memory of my mother in Kettles Hill House, the first place where she worked as a cook. Uh, My father worked as a very unsuccessful butler and, and gardener, but my mother worked as a cook. And I visited, I came to visit from Liverpool. When the school holidays came, I went to stay at Kettles Hill House with her. I remember sitting in the kitchen, and she was in the scullery, and she was doing the washing up. And I looked out, and I saw her. I saw the steam rising above the sink, and my mother had a wonderful whistle. She was whistling some lovely tune. And that is a kind of uh, memory that gives the sense I have of her. It was a, it wasn't only happy, it was delicious. It was a charming, delicious tune. And there she was doing the washing up. Because, of course, when you were in England, you had to stay with foster families because you couldn't live with your parents because your parents were working as servants. As servants, and, right. But that, did that surprise you? I mean, to see her doing such menial work, which in, in Vienna you would have had a maid to do, and, and here mm-hmm. she just adapted, so... Yes, I... It seems to me what I thought was in the innermost mind, oh, this is something I'm going to write. You don't say, look, this is a disaster. Look how, but you say, ah, this is interesting. I'm going to write this. this is, I'm, going to, I, I'm going to describe how that is. I think that's the most honest answer I can give you to my reactions. I was interested and excited by it. And your father, you said, was a little bit out of this circle. My father was a very tall man with one shoulder higher than the other. He was what was unusual for middle European Jews. He was more than six foot tall, rather elegant, I think. I didn't, wouldn't have known that now. Thinking back, I think he was. He worked in a bank and I think had every kind of physical difficulty he had an overlarge heart, he had uh, the frightis. He was very frequently ill and was very frequently, we visited him in a hospital. And I have thought that my father's decline, his physical decline in England seemed to me now to be more terrible than the emigration, than the kinder transport. To see my father lose his capacities, not able, really not able to live in this world. And to see the drain it was on my mother was probably the hardest thing that I've ever experienced in my life. And here was my father probably feeling sick most of the time, and he was supposed to wait at table and remember that you serve from the left and you take away from the right And he could never remember. I don't think he wanted to remember it. So my mother, you asked me why I admired my mother. My mother quickly took off her kitchen apron and put on her little, some little white apron and went in and served from the left and from the right, just as you're supposed to, and went back out and cooked the next course and went in and served it. She was able to accommodate whatever needed to be accommodated. My father spoke English when we came. My mother didn't. 
but it was my mother who was an English speaker very promptly. It was she who would cook dinner and visit my father in the hospital and go back and do the washing up. She was able to do all these things and seemed to not... I never had the idea that my mother... I mean, I worried about her. I thought I, I was not the only person who worried about her strength. But she was not... She didn't look depressed. She did not look desperate. Was your father's illness or his weakness frightening to you as a child? Very frightening. Very frightening. I had this notion that I had a superstitious notion that if I could imagine what was the next time he was going to have a stroke, he wouldn't have a stroke. If I could just think of all the things that could go wrong, I noticed that things always go wrong when you don't expect it. So I made the deduction that if you did expect it, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> and let me tell you, it's hard work to constantly try to figure out all the things that could possibly go wrong. I was kept busy. <laughs> it's a kind of magical thinking. Magical thinking, indeed, yes. Some of your most vivid and comical scenes in other people's houses involve your grandmother. And as a young girl back in Austria before the war, you had lived with your grandparents in their village, fishermen, and then you didn't see them for a whole decade. What was it like to be reunited with them in, in the Dominican Republic? I did. I loved my grandmother. But she was... I don't know whether you noticed that in uh, Half the Kingdom, I've got a character was like yes, my grandmother. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> my grandmother could retain hurt feelings from some event that happened in her youth and hold on to it through two wars, one holocaust, two emigrations, and still remember it and resent it and grieve over it. But she was also a witty woman, and I thought a very beautiful woman. She had golden skin and silver hair, and I loved her very much. My grandfather died in the Dominican Republic, but my grandmother made it to New York, and we lived together, my Uncle Paul, my grandmother, my mother, and I, for some years. And, of course, your grandmother was very argumentative. I mean, she was full of opinions. What's your strongest memory of her? Actually, the memory I have, this is in the room next to the store in Santiago de los Caballeros in the Dominican Republic, where my uncle had a grocery store. My grandmother had said something to my grandfather, and I thought it was unkind, and I went to stand in front of, or I think I sat on my grandfather's lap. I think that's what I did. And my grandfather stroked my hair and said, you know, I love your grandmother very much. I thought I was... Uh, protecting uh, him. Protecting him. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Let, let's talk just for a moment about the Dominican Republic. You, you lived there from 1948 to 1951, teaching English while waiting for your number to come up, so to speak, so you could yes, be admitted to right, the United States. Right. You didn't want to be there. You, you say you wilted in the Dominican Republic. What, what happened to you? I'm a little bit irritated with myself for the way I behaved in the Dominican Republic. I was 19 when I got there. I had just got my degree at the University of London, my degree in English literature, and I followed my family to the Dominican Republic. My uncle went because he wanted to join his wife after England, after the beginning of the war, interned German-speaking enemy aliens was the denomination. And they were put into camps on the Isle of Man. Both my uncle Paul and my father, men over 16, were suspected of being possible fifth column. And my uncle had to leave his young bride, his 21-year-old, in, in the Midlands. So he chose to go to the Dominican Republic and was able to get my grandparents out of Austria, out of Vienna. And when my grandfather got sick, he asked my mother to join him there. And I stayed behind, finished my degree in English at the, at the university, and then joined them. 
I didn't want to go. The idea was my father had put down our name to come to America in August 1938, the year after Hitler took over. And our quota, our number, didn't come up until March 1951. So we waited 13 years. And I didn't, of course, know when this number was going to come up. It came up after three years. As far as I could see, I was going to be stuck in the Dominican Republic indefinitely. Nor did I particularly want to come to the United States. I had very strong, I mean, I had decided that I loved England. I always thought that since I couldn't be 100% English, I was 150% English. I want to go back to England. And my, my prospect here were to really not want to come to America, something about which I've changed my mind completely by now, by the way. But I thought maybe I would have to stay in the Dominican Republic. And I was sulky. I was sulking. I mean, I think what we've said is that I really have rather a good time. I, there are many things that I enjoy, but I did not enjoy the Dominican Republic and it was entirely my fault for not making use of it. And as I say, I'm really a little irritated with myself that instead of enjoying it, learning Spanish well, seeing what there was, it's a beautiful country, it's an interesting country, but all I was doing was not wanting to be there. And it's a waste. I wasted those three years in the Dominican Republic. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. Laurie Siegel, your novel, My First American, reflects your experience of moving to the United States in 1951 and, and getting to know and find your place in the culture. Your fictional alter ego, if we can call her that, is Ilka Weisnitz, yeah. which means, I guess it means know nothing. Unlike you, Ilka even has to learn the language. What made you want to follow her on this journey? I thought it, it firstly, it, it really amused me, the notion of uh, reversing the Henry James image of the sophisticated European vis-a-vis the puritanical and uh, naive, usually naive American. American. Yeah. And I turned that one around and had my naive 19-year-old Austrian Jew and a black intellectual who teaches her how to be an American. I thought that was a funny thing to do. I enjoyed doing that. And, of course, it is, to some degree, autobiographical. I came to New York with a degree in English, but my Ilka, my character, I thought it would be amusing to calibrate her Americanization by her acquisition of the language. It's been described as a book about race unlike any other. I wanted to describe this fascinating, complicated, suffering black American. He does have a reality, but his problem is he's an alcoholic, he's an intellectual, he is quite some 15, 20, even 20 years older than Ilka, quite a lot older. Ilka is maybe 20, he is 50, yeah, he's a lot older. And they are together for some five years in which she learns about America and learns for her to be with an alcoholic is a thrill. She has no notion whatsoever about drink. I mean, Jewish. Oddly enough, my family, my Austrian family, they were wine merchants. But my grandfather used to send the maid over to the restaurant to get him a glass of wine in the evening. I've never been able to understand that. (laughs) But for Ilka, the notion of an alcoholic who is out of control, she, she feels as if, and a black man, she feels as if she's embracing all suffering. She, in the course of the novel, finds out that... uh, 
to be with an alcoholic can also be extremely boring. More than 20 years after My First American, you, you bring Ilka back. Uh, she's the same but different. Uh, this is in your, in your story collection, Shakespeare's Kitchen. And here she's hired to work at a think tank affiliated with New England College. She's trying to find a set of friends to belong to, uh, elective cousins, as, as she puts it. Yeah. It's the idea of one of the things, of course, that the emigration that Hitler does is to decimate your family. I mean, I have cousins in Uruguay, in Paraguay, in Argentina, all over the world. I mean, I do have a couple of them here, but my grandmother was one of a family of 15. In her generation, only three of them came out, but the next generation is spread all over the world. And I had this notion that uh, in that in that sort of situation, uh, what you most need is a artificial set of cousins or, or or a village, if you like, not only a best friend but a set of friends. And uh, Shakespeare's Kitchen is about how intimacies are created, how they uh, continue, how they fall apart. That's what interested me to write about. It's the family that is created rather than given you. And interestingly, it seems to me if those created friendships go on long enough, they begin to feel like cousinships. Mm -hmm. At, at one point in the book, Elka says to her friend and lover, I feel every love and each friendship to be a gorgeous accident, an error in my favor, and in danger of correction. Accident, error, is, is that how you see these relationships? Good luck. It's a matter of luck. It's not something that nobody promised you that you would have a best friend and, and love. It always seemed to me just, you know, there's that wonderful phrase, I think I use it somewhere, by joy surprised. I do find that life is quite entertaining and I'm always positively surprised and pleased that it should be so. It's not a given. I think one of the ways to deal with the kind of uh, difficult lives that my mother had is to assume things will go wrong. And then they don't. And you say, wow, look at that. Relationships are important. I mean, they're a lifeline, really, in your new novel, yeah. Half the Kingdom. And as you've described it, it's an eccentric book. It's, it's, it's funny and heartbreaking, and it shows us the indignities and even the beauty of old age. Why did you want to create this world of these older people? I mean, was it relating to your, your grandmother, your mother? I mean, they lived into their 80s, into 100. I mean... No, it's, it's. I mean, I'm 85, so I'm writing. You're writing I about mean, your I peers. Mean, I mean, I'm almost everything I've written, and I'm not that particularly thrilled by the fact that most of my writing starts autobiographically. It doesn't stay that way. I mean, I have a lot of fun moving in many directions, but it does start with something some aspect of my life. And surely being old is the aspect of my life that I'm dealing with now and that is interesting now and that I'm learning and knowing about now. And of course, my mother merely preceded me. She got to be 101. So by that time, I was, I mean, I, I was already, I'm 20 years younger, so I was 80, right? We are all getting, I mean, um, all my friends are, are this is, so this is what's happening now, and that's why I, I write about it. And Half the Kingdom is a kind of fable or, or, or fairy tale, and, and, and of course this is territory you know because you worked on translations of two collections of fairy and, and folk tales collected right. by the Brothers Grimm. The epigraph comes from the Brothers Grimm, and if they have not died, they are living to this hour. Well, so does Half the Kingdom. This occurs in several of the stories. It's something like, and the prince and the princess had this wonderful wedding. They inherited half the kingdom. And if they haven't died, they're living to this hour. And I've always been amused. And it seemed to me as fairy tales in the common mind, I think, are understood to be 
they give you everything you want. A fairy tale is supposed to mean getting what you want. That is really not all the fairy tales. So they give you everything you want. But isn't it amusing that they only give you half the kingdom? And that the next thing they say is, and if they haven't, they remind you that you're going to die. <laughs> now, isn't that interesting? The, the fairy tales are a lot more honest than <laughs> many pieces of fiction. The story begins in, in the hospital emergency room, which has become a place of enchantment in a perverse kind of way, in that everyone aged 62 and over who passes through its doors gets caught in a mysterious wave of dementia. There seems to be uh, Alzheimer's is infectious or something like that. And you have a cast of characters on the case, new ones, ones we've met before in your fiction. These different characters, what made you want to bring them back? Partly because I'm fond of them. Partly it's nice to see that you met them in their middle life, or in Ilka's case, even in her in her youth, and now they're old. Let's take a look at them. There's something else. I am not a good inventor. I'm a good writer, but I'm not full of inventions. Look at the Jane Austen novels. Every single one of those heroines is not Jane Austen. Most of the characters that we write about are, to some extent, ourselves. And I wanted to acknowledge that. But the fact that in Half the Kingdom, everybody over 62 becomes demented, but seems to be physically getting better, right? That's the project. What I was pushing, what I, I was look, looking for an extreme example of the conditions in which we so interestingly live. Medical science is giving us 10 to 20 years more of life, but does not know how to keep our minds from deteriorating. But, I mean, these people, a lot of, you know, half of them aren't really demented. I mean, they, they seem so to, to people younger than them, but in fact, we know, you know. That is true. Let me say something about dementia. I did mean to give them dementia, and I, uh, as I explained to people, I really did do quite a lot of research about Alzheimer's, and I discovered that, fictionally speaking, it was useless to me. I couldn't use it. I didn't know how to use it. I didn't want to use it. So when I talk about dementia, what I'm really saying is people have nightmares. I mean, the, my, my characters have nightmares in which they get stuck. And some of them are, are comic nightmares or also have a comic uh, aspect to them. These are not, you, you're not going to find these dementias in the medical literature. But it is also true that their minds do not work right. For instance, my character Lucy, her nightmare is that she's out of the loop of writers who can get themselves published. So it does drive her crazy, and she starts reading her stories to everybody over the telephone, whether they want to listen or not. It's a different form of self-publishing. <laughs> she goes, she goes through her address book and calls them up. Everybody, whether they, whether they want to listen or not, they're going to hear her story. Because it, Willy-nilly. There's, there's a kind of urgency to her. Yeah. Yeah. But the story oh, that she needs to tell is about, it's called Rumpelstiltskin in Emergency, and it, and it seems to be about her husband's last ambulance ride the, to the yeah. ER. It's about something else also, which is less dramatic. It's also about the poverty of the language when we try to explain our pains. Take the Roger's thesaurus, which is what he calls for. There are hundreds of words for the way light emanates from its source. You find me one word that expresses the sensation of throwing up. The words that we have for physical, the physical sensations of pains, which are every pain is, but is very different. We don't know how to explain. And, and the doctors are always asking you what you feel. 
And in one of the room, there's even a chart of smiling, uh, of happy we, face and less happy face. We can explain the, the degree of pain, but not the quality of the pain. So I've often tried to use my skills as a writer, and the doctor said, you mean it stings, or you mean it... They're, they're reductive. They're reductive to the, to the words that you're supposed to use. But that's because the language is not interested in your being able to describe it. Isn't that odd? And that's why it's Rumpelstiltskin. That's why it's Rumpelstiltskin. What's the name? What's the name? Yeah. What's it called? Yeah. Delusion uh, or, or dementia, mental disturbances of various kinds grip the characters in this novel in, in, in many ways. Francis hears music in his head. Uh, he's suffering from a kind of oral hallucination with no off option. Jack can't stop weeping in despair. Samson believes he's drowned. Ida, who you've alluded to earlier, Ida dwells on insults of the past. Could you read from the book? Okay. May I say before that, Ida came into the emergency room with amnesia. She didn't know her name, didn't know where she lived, didn't know how to get into her room. She sits down on a chair and wakes up. Bathy sat across from the dreadful old person and asked her, did she know where she was? The emergency room, Cedars of Lebanon. Name, Ida Farkash. Do you know where you live? Ida Farkash named her New York address and the date and place of her birth. Podjorny before World War I, when it was still hungry. The Slovaks call it Bratislava. In German, it's Pressburg. The intake form for seniors had no rubric for the 20th century history of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Nearest relative? Marta, my daughter, my sister Poldi and I don't talk. You remember your daughter's phone number? And a lot of good it does me. I call and have my little chat with the answering machine and then I sit in a chair in my apartment and wait for it to occur to my daughter to call me back. Marital status? Some status, said Ida Farkash, when your husband takes you home from your wedding on the bus with a carpet rolled under his arm. A carpet? How do you mean a carpet? Carpet, a carpet! Crappy thing that Mama had by her bed and Bertha thought I might use in my foyer. Who had a foyer? Bertha was the oldest, so she got the apartment at 12 Judengasse. In the end, of course, the Nazis got it, Poldi and Kari and Miklos and I were the only ones that got out. Who brings a carpet to a wedding? Occupation? The Nazis marched into Bratislava in the March of 1939. I, I, think, I think they mean your occupation. What work did you do? Miklos was dead by the time the child and I got to New York. Poldi had a job as a companion to her Miss Margate, never introduced me, never took me to Miss Margate's evenings, didn't take me with her to Hertha Frankl's birthday, and it wasn't even Poldi, it was me that was in Hertha's class, even if we weren't best friends. I mean, what work did you do? Poldi's car used to import wine in Bratislava with a branch in Vienna. In New York, the men got jobs as mail clerks, Packelschupfer, we used to call them, little parcel tossers. After he died, that was 53, Martha and I moved in with Poldi, and I got my social work certificate and worked at the Castle House Social Security Office, where no one told me and no one told Herbie Dukash what courses you were meant to take for promotion. Social worker wrote Bethy on the line on the intake form for seniors. Laurie Siegel reading from her novel Half the Kingdom. Was it fun for you to bring your grandmother back in that exchange? Oh, it was, yes, yes. And this woman goes from amnesia to remembering every grievance and grudge. And You see, I think that is, that's, uh, it's so odd that that should be so terrible and it should be so funny, no? <laughs> that your choices are amnesia or remembering every rejection or humiliation you've ever suffered. That's funny. <laughs> In an awful way. An awful, yeah. yeah. 
in the end, her daughter suggests to her mama, you can let it go, forget it. You know, this is, this is all 70 years ago. And uh, it occurs to Ida that you could do that. She thinks, yeah, I could, I could let that go. I mean, I don't, I don't have to be angry about that. And then she thinks, but what will I think about? What will I do if I don't have my grudges to think about? What will I think about? So she gathers them to herself and hugs them to herself. She's going to hold on. There's a sweetness in Half the Kingdom, for example, in the, in the lifelong friendship of Lucy and Jenny, in a kind of romance between Jack and Hope, these other characters, uh, the devotion of Maggie to her mother. There is also the opportunity for playful humor. For instance, you can... You can buy a device called the Twice Told, which can help you stop telling the same story over again to somebody who's already heard it. <laughs> oh, it's so it's a device that I want so badly. <laughs> we Put all do. <laughs> <laughs> what do you oh, see? The is- trick about that one is that it has it has a special button. If you press the button, it tells you before you start the story. Because once you've started the story, you look at the other person's eyes and you know you've told it to them before. So the device stops you before you start. Until that device uh, is invented, I mean, what what do you see as the most surprising or unexpectedly rewarding aspects of old age? There are a number of us who say to each other, Aren't you having a good time being old? That is when, when we are not actually having our back aches or our knee aches. When we are not actually in pain, we look at each other and we confess to each other that we're enjoying it. I just mean daily, ordinary things. I quoted that wonderful... Uh, it's from, from one of those wall cards in the museum next to a Miro painting in Miro is quoted as saying, I have to confess that I'm beginning to love ordinary objects more and more. Things like the fuel lamp, potatoes. That's what I'm talking about. That it has pleasures. And uh, that one manages to keep horror at bay most of the time. Does writing help deal with aging? Oh, I think so. I mean, this is, you know, this is sort of where we started out. You see something dreadful, and instead of sticking with how dreadful it is, you say, I'm going to write this. And the next thing you're doing is you're writing it. Grieving is one thing, and the writing grieving is another thing. It is an action rather than a depression. It's such a pleasure to have the chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Elena. Thank you so much. Lori Siegel in New York in 2013. Half the Kingdom and her new book, Ladies' Lunch and Other Stories, are published by Melville House. Earlier this fall, she had a marvelous story in The New Yorker called On the Agenda, a continuation of those lunching ladies so economical. And a few years ago, age 91, she came out with The Journal I Did Not Keep, new and selected writing, a mix of fiction and nonfiction. Today's show was produced by senior producer Sandra Rabinovich. Katie Swales is also producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer, with thanks to Olivia Pascarelli. Technical operations by Kira Mahoney. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, one of Ireland's great poets, Seamus Heaney, winner of the 1995 Nobel Prize in Literature. He died 10 years ago when he was 74. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.